If you take your Bibles and turn them to the book of Ecclesiastes. Actually, I decided to exercise a little pastoral last-minute prerogative, change the passage. Instead of uh, preaching chapter 3, I would like to preach chapter 12 on page 559 in your pew Bible. While you're turning there, I'd just like to tell you how thankful I am to be able to, to be here, to see Darren's congregation. Like uh, Andy said, Darren and I go all the way back to college. We were college roommates. Love him very much, Rebecca very much, um, Sarah and, and baby Luke. And it's a little intimidating to be in a facility quite like this. I've never preached in a church where you can exit its doors walk 300 yards and be standing in the ocean. I mean, it's, it's quite incredible. And all the white and the arched roof, I tell you that churches, church buildings in Boise, Idaho don't quite look like this. So if I seem a bit nervous, uh, I'm probably a little bit in awe. Before I read the scriptures, let me ask a rhetorical question. What do you think is the most valuable piece of land in the world. You might say the East African diamond mines. You might say the oil fields of the Middle East. You might say a couple of weeks ago I read on Yahoo there's some there's a 2000 acre ranch just outside of Jackson Hole, Wyoming, right at the base of the Tetons. It has a 52 stall world-class equestrian center. It, it's stunning property. It's apparently it's the most valuable, most expensive home property on the market in the United States right now, $170 million. And yet the most, the, most, the most valuable land in the world is none of these. It's the graveyard. Because there lies buried so many unfulfilled dreams, unwritten novels, masterpieces of art that were never created, businesses that were never started, relationships that were never reconciled. Now, that is it's supposed to be a provocative answer. I know that there's going to come a day when a large group of people leave their cars, walk out into a green field, then all of them will return to their cars except for one person, and that one person will be you and me. I just finished preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes in my church. It's a very melancholy, dark, somewhat depressing book. And one of the major themes of the book is the theme of death. And how should we live in light of our own frailty and our own mortality? And so that's, that's what this chapter deals with. Chapter 12, verse 1. The author tells us, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Remember your Creator. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. He goes on in verse 2 through 8 and he gives us a poetic, metaphorical picture of what it means to grow old. In verse 2, remember your creator before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. And the clouds return after the rain. What do you think that metaphor is supposed to, to draw to mind? Remember your Creator before everything goes dark. 
before, before everything turns black. Remember your Creator, verse 3, before in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, which might be your legs, it might be your hands, it might be your arms, and the strong men are bent because of their backs, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, uh, the grinders, the picture there is of, of women out taking the corn and grinding them through the mill. And they, he says here, remember your creator before the grinders are few. In other words, he's talking about before you lose your teeth. Verse 4, remember your creator before the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird. And all the daughters of song are brought low. I think this poet, this metaphor is intended to say is remember your creator before you get to that point in life where you can't sleep in anymore. Right. When you as you age, it becomes more and more difficult to sleep past nine o'clock. In fact, it's more and more difficult to sleep past six thirty in the morning. And yet you can't. You're also still losing your sound before the before the daughters of song are brought low and you can't hear them anymore. Remember your Creator, verse 5, before you're afraid also of what is high and, and terrors are in the way and you develop all these irrational fears like the world is spinning faster and faster and faster and things are becoming crazier and crazier and crazier. That's how it feels. Remember your Creator, before the almond tree blossoms. And apparently the almond tree's blossom is always white. So he's saying, remember your Creator before your hair goes gray. Remember your Creator before the grasshopper drags itself along and you lose all of your energy and all the spring in your step. And desire fails. Maybe sexual desire fails. And the mourners go about the streets. Verse 6, remember your Creator before the silver cord is snapped, that is, your spine, spinal column, before the golden bowl is broken, it's probably your head, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. Verse 7, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Oh, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. And really, the word there is vapor. And what he's saying is life is like that morning mist that blows in off of, off of the ocean. As soon as the, as, the, as the sun comes out, it burns the mist away and all is, to, it, all is gone. Then he has a parenthetical note here about the author of the book. Besides being wise, verse 9, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Here's what he has to say about words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, which you may remember is just a stick with, with a sharp end on it. It prods us. Uh, it prods us in the way of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is weariness of the flesh. 
which if you're a student right now, you would say amen to. Verse 13, here's how he sums it up. The end of the matter is this. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God, keep his commandments, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Yeah, so I'm 35, and I have discovered that even at the age of 35, I... I'm filled with all sorts of irrational fears that never bothered me when I was, say, 15. I mean, when you're young, there is that sense of indestructibility. You have the, the big letter S on your, on your chest. Nothing can harm you. But just 10, 15 years later, you become afraid of things, if you're like me, like germs. I'm a germaphobe. I have five children, and we're always washing our hands with hand sanitizer. We won't go into Walmart or any other grocery store without lathering ourselves down before and after. Uh, We fear germs. We fear standing at the top of tall buildings looking downward. We fear... Have you noticed this tendency in yourself to become more and more xenophobic? That is, you become more and more afraid of strangers and strange people... I become more and more afraid of going up to the customer service desk and you know, asking for, for uh, the, you know, this return or whatever. We fear many things. We fear gaining too much weight. We fear wrinkly skin. We fear claustrophobia. Emotionally, we fear things like embarrassment, like criticism, don't we? Failure, letting others down. What is interesting is that we as human beings have all of these different phobias and yet the one phobia that does not come natural to single one of us is the fear of God. Isn't that amazing? I mean, probably the truth be told that over this last seven days, we and almost everybody that surround us, we we were afraid of getting a sunburn. We were afraid of suffering heat stroke. We are afraid of spiders more than we are afraid of facing the Almighty. And it's just so absurd. But if you look inside yourself, you know it's, that's true. You know, we're more afraid of failing an algebra test than we are face-to-face with God. And the reason is, is because our cultural notion of God, this is just the fishbowl that we have grown up in, our cultural notion of God is that if He exists, He must be some uh, permissive parent type. (laughs) He must be the the grandfather, the great-grandfather in the sky who is looking down on his children, always smiling, wanting us to just have a good time and get along and and be happy and fulfill all all our potential and actualize all of our dreams. That's that's the American view of God. The last thing that would naturally come into our minds is that God could be a threat to a, you know, a sincere, good-hearted guy like me. We just don't think of him in those terms. And yet, I think if we are honest and we read the Bible, we realize that the two cannot exist side by side. Either the Judeo-Christian worldview and notion of who God is is true, or the American cultural notion of who God is true, but they both can't be true. You know, either God is 
a lightweight and he's a pussycat and he's a pushover, or as the Bible seems to describe him, our God is a holy terror at some times. Number one, what does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to fear God? When you're, when you're listening to somebody tell you their own personal story, sometimes you'll hear this. They'll say that I grew up fearing my father. And when they, when they give you that piece of information, you have to do a little digging. You have to discover, what, what do you really mean by that? Because I grew up fearing my father may mean, and we all know that, that dad came home at 11 o'clock every night, drunk as a skunk, and my sister and I would crouch under the covers, and we would... We would flinch every time he raised his voice. And we just tried to stay out of his way. And, and we were scared to death of that man. And that's what the theologians would call, they make a distinction between different types of fear. They would call that servile fear. It is the fear of a slave right in front of their, their master, fearing that they'll be whipped to an inch of their own lives. Or... You're hearing somebody's story and they say, I grew up fearing my dad and you realize, or I grew up fearing my mom, that it was in a good sense, that I knew my, I knew they were, they were kind, I knew that they loved me. There was never a doubt in my mind that my mom and dad loved me. I also knew that, that they were firm and sometimes they would punish me. And, I, and yes, I was afraid of that punishment to a certain degree, but more so I was just afraid I was just afraid of letting my, my mom or my dad down. I was afraid of disappointing them. I was afraid of, of, I was afraid of, of doing the relationship wrong. And that's what theologians would call as philia fear. Servile fear is being scared witless, being scared just being scared to death before a God who is all terrible, who is, who is all, you know, slap you across the face. And, but the biblical idea of fear of the Lord is, is not that. It's filio fear. You, you are a little afraid, but you're, you're afraid for entirely different reasons. And I think that begins to approximate what the Bible means by fear of the Lord. Approximate it, but not exhaust it. Eugene Peterson, he's the author of the, the message, the paraphrase of the Bible. He's actually written tons and tons of really good books. And in one of those, he gives what I think is a brilliant description of the fear of the Lord. He says, quote, The fear of the Lord is a fear that pulls us out of our preoccupation with ourselves, out of our preoccupation with our feelings or our circumstances, and it leads us into a world of wonder. The fear of the Lord, he says, is not dread, but it's astonishment. It's not terror, but it is reverence. It is not shaking in your boots, panic, but it is, in, it is enraptured with love, fascination. Have you ever experienced that? You're in Paris. You're standing in the Louvre. You're... You're looking at the most exquisite painting your eyes have ever beheld. And what happens in that moment? There's almost like this hushed sense of awe that comes over you. And you don't want to be distracted by anything. You don't want to be distracted by the chatting tourists over on this side or the cell phone ringing back over there or the kids 
who are running up and down the halls of the museum. You don't want to be distracted by any of that because you want to give your full and complete and undivided attention of your soul to that beautiful thing that has taken your breath away. And that's the fear of the Lord. You want to enter into a world of wonder, of reverence and awe. And I just wonder, if I, I myself ask you, have you, ever, have you ever experienced God that way? It is to, it's to feel infinitesimally small before something or someone that's so very great. I grew up in Phoenix. I made a number of trips up to the Grand Canyon. If you've been to the Grand Canyon, you know that what's most striking about it is not the depth of the canyon, but the fact that you stand on the edge and there is nothing but this yawning expanse of air in front of you. It's a very strange feeling. There's nothing but air between me and, and, and tens of hundreds of miles to the north of you. I mean, you, to get to the north end of the Grand Canyon from the south end, you actually have to drive around it. You can't see it out there. There's this yawning expanse between me and it and that begins to approximate the fear of the Lord because when you stand before Him, you begin to realize that there is such a difference between who He is and who I am. And who He is is not what... And who I am is not who I want to be or who I should be. And it's both breathtaking and, and, and heartbreaking at the same instant. Have you experienced that? English poet William Coleridge, in an essay, he describes two tourists who are standing before a waterfall. And one of the tourists describes the waterfall simply as, quote, pretty. And the other tourist describes the waterfall as, quote, sublime. And he said, sublime, sublimity. Oh, yes, that is, it means it's so awe-inspiringly beautiful that it, it is, quote, a synthesis of love and fear. Do you get that? I, just, I think that's perhaps one of the best ways to describe the fear of the Lord. So awe-inspiringly beautiful is, the, is God that you experience in His presence both uh, a synthesis of love and fear. You say, how in the world can I experience both of those contrary emotions at the same time? And the answer is, I don't quite know. <laughs> Because that is rather paradoxical, isn't it? And yet, um, I, surely that begins to approximate what the Bible is talking about when it says, fear your creator. Number two, number two. Does God really want us to fear him in the New Testament? We say, oh, of course, in the Old Testament, he wants us to fear him in the New Testament. The answer to this is pretty obvious. I want you to listen to the way the Christian life is described in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 31. It says, this is the early church. These are the early people walking with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, being built up and walking, being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And it increased in numbers. And there's the synthesis. The fear of the Lord and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. Fear and love in the same time. Or Hebrews 12, 28, which is clearly a reference to God on Sinai. The author of Hebrews says, Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably 
with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Any chance anybody could give me a cup of water? (laughs) I usually drink through at least one cup at at home. Um, Let's perform a, a thought experiment. Let's say you are the chief financial officer, you're CFO of a major firm here in Biloxi, and you receive a notarized letter in the mail from your favorite group, the Internal Revenue Service, and it's, dire- it's addressed directly to you, and it's written by the, the director of the agency himself, and he is giving you due warning that in about a week's time, he and all of his, you know, Tax agents and all of his FBI agents are going to descend upon you like a swarm of bees and determine whether or not you are, that your tax liability has been accurately reported or not. When you get a letter that significant, that threatening, what do you do with a letter like that? Do you go out and watch a matinee, six o'clock movie at the theater that evening? Do you, do you go out and hit the clubs and go dancing and, and spend your night you know, into the wee hours of the morning. Perhaps the greatest respect, thank you, perhaps the greatest respect we could possibly pay God is this, and that is to simply take God seriously. See, you can tell when a person is taking something seriously, can't you? Because they're not... In the case of something threatening and frightening, they're not out partying <laughs> the night before, but they're taking... If we could just... We, again, we grow up in the fishbowl with utter familiarity with God. We think He's, he's a lightweight. He's a welterweight. But if we could just take Him seriously as He's presented to us in the Scriptures and realize that, that maybe when we come in here on a Sunday morning that we are doing something far more majestic and far more frightening than we ever could have imagined. Yeah, I wonder if that's in part what Sunday means to you. It's, it, it's something that I'm still learning. I think it's something that Christians who have been Christians longer than I've been alive are still learning. And yet, and yet that's what God would press us to. Number three. Am I on number three? I'm on number three. A little bit of fear is is good. A little bit of fear is good. It heightens the senses. If you were to talk to a soldier who is out on the lines, and if you asked him, who do you want to stay up through the late night watches? Who do you want to stay up on point and, and protect you? Would you like somebody who is a little bit afraid, or would you like somebody who is supremely confident? <laughs> you know, they're going to say, I want somebody who's got a little fear. If you're going to take the state bar exam this next week, one of my friends back in Boise took it two weeks ago, you better believe that he was a little afraid of that test. And that was, a, that was a very good thing. If you're going into a big game, you don't want to underestimate your opponent. You want to be a little bit afraid that they might wax you off of the court because a little bit of fear is good. And we have good reason to fear God. If I could give you this illustration, I think this is... This begins to really capture it. The game of baseball. In the game of baseball, we have, uh, what, two teams, about 30 men on each side of the dugout. We have two managers. We have about 40,000 people in the stadium. And we have approximately 10 million people watching on the television screen. And 
you know, we could even, Fox Sports could do an online poll and ask all 10 million of us, do you believe that Derek Jeter was safe or was he out? And every one of us unanimously could say, we believe that Derek Jeter was out. And you know what? The umpire of the game doesn't give a (laughs) you-know-what. He doesn't care what our opinion is because the umpire in a game is his own little deity. He is a king of his own little diamond-shaped kingdom. And he is the only authority that matters. He is the only one who gets to call balls and strikes. It does not matter what we think uh, about the pitch. It's, it's all about what he, what he thinks. I don't know if you've ever watched a Japanese baseball game, but the Japanese in their culture, they understand that how do you treat a person who's like that? You revere them. And so in a Japanese baseball game, if the guy's called out at first and the manager thinks, hey, he was safe, do you know what that Japanese manager does? He does nothing. He keeps his mouth shut. And in an American baseball game, when that guy, when the call goes against us, what happens What happens in an American baseball game? The manager sprints out of the dugout and he's spitting tobacco and he's cursing and he's kicking dirt all over the feet of the umpire. And I mean, I remember times when the, the manager picked up the first base and literally threw it you know, into the outfield. Why? Because one culture understands what it means to revere authority. Another culture simply doesn't. Isn't that true? Isn't that so deeply embedded in us? The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that at the end of time, every one of us, every one of us will peer before the judgment seat of Christ and he will judge every one of our lives, Paul says, according to how we've lived. And that means that he will call every ball a ball, every strike a strike, and that we'll have to give an account for every loose word that we've spoken and he's recorded. And for every wrong click on the mouse, on the, on the, on the computer. And that is so deeply humbling and sobering. I, I mean, really, it should make every one of us get on our knees and just say, God have mercy. God have mercy. A little bit of fear that the... A little bit of fear of the end of our lives is a good thing. Number four, how do we cultivate the fear of the Lord? The how questions are usually some of the most difficult because if it was easy to do anything the Bible tells us, I mean, if, it, if you could do it with just the snap of a finger, then, then probably all of us would have it already. How do you cultivate the fear of the Lord? A couple of ideas came to mind. I think it requires having a deep, 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 deep yearning to really want to see God and know God. And know God, you know, as He is. And know God, not just as God like a title, but God as a person, God as a reality. If you, if you look at some of the biblical prayers found in the Old Testament, you might write these down. Exodus 33. Nehemiah 1, Isaiah 62, Isaiah 64, you discover how badly some of these people of the past, men and women of the past, how desperately they just wanted to know God. 
And yet even that's dangerous, we know. I mean, the presence of God, the glory of God is described in the Bible as a white hot light of pupil disintegrating, um, eye bursting brilliance. And that the only reason any, any one of us would want to go into the presence of God, the only reason we, any one of us could go into the presence of God is by, having, is by possessing a deep-seated assurance that He accepts us in Jesus Christ, totally apart from our own spiritual achievements. That's the only reason that we could even dare want to go and see God. I mean, the presence of God in the Bible is described as radioactive toxic. You know, it's toxic gas. Like No human could, could stand and survive there for more than a nanosecond. The only way that, that I would ever want to go into the presence of God is if my life is so hidden in Jesus, if Jesus is so much like my body armor, my shield, my gas mask, you know, my, my nuclear mitten bits, uh, uh, Nuclear mitten gloves, not bits. <laughs> that, that I'm just I'm so protected by him. That's the that's that's the only way we would ever want to go. So, I guess you to, to to cultivate the fear of the Lord, you would pray prayers like these. You would pray, God, I want to know you, God. The only way that I could ever know you is is if if you've covered me in Jesus. And then another way. A practical, simple way, over the last couple of weeks, I've been reading in my personal Bible study time, I've been reading in the prophets. I've been reading in the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel. Not very happy books. And pretty, pretty hard and, and frightening books. But I think when you have something like the prophets, when that is running through your veins, you can't help but... but Walk just a little more gingerly into the presence of God. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Most importantly, I think the very best way to cultivate the fear of the Lord is simply by looking at the cross of Christ. How does the cross, how does the cross help us cultivate the fear of the Lord? In two senses. Number one, some of us as Christians, we don't honestly have a very deep appreciation of, or knowledge of our sin. Um, we might call ourselves sinners, but that really doesn't affect us on a very emotional level. I mean, you may be so accustomed to calling yourself a sinner, it's just like, yeah, I'm a sinner. <laughs> I don't, I don't live up to God's standards. And maybe you grew up in a Christian tradition where they never even talked about sin in the church, where where they told you you're a pretty good guy, and well, when you come to the cross, that you see. That your very best deeds, your, your very best day, the very best day of your whole life, when you woke up in the morning, you did your six o'clock quiet time, and you, you exercised before you went to work, and then you, you drove and, and you shared Christ with a coworker over lunch, and then you went to the gym afterwards, and, and you worked out and, and talked to a guy, you helped a guy do, lift up the bar while he was bench pressing and was able to sneak in the gospel in some presentation there. Your very best day of your life. And yet, even your very best deeds, they're just like filthy rags, he says. Filthy rags in my eyes. And you see the cross and you see what God is, is doing with, with your sin. You see God obliterating 
His Son, there, as He bears in His body and His soul the punishment for even our best deeds. And then on the other hand, some of us, we, do, we have way too much a sense of our sins. You know, we are, we're constantly reminded by our inadequacies and our flaws. We have only a very distant appreciation of grace. And we, we think of all the things that we hate about ourselves, all the spiritual inconsistencies that we commit on a weekly basis. We say to ourselves repeatedly, how could God love me? I feel so unlovable. I feel so filthy and dirty and vile. And, and you, gotta, you too have to go to the cross. And you have to see that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, volunteered to stand in your place there. He didn't have his arm twisted behind his back. He voluntarily took that on, on your behalf. You know, I personally, this is how I actually think it works. I think that at different times in our spiritual lives, we, we see the cross from different vantage points. So that in those times in my life where I'm really in tune with my own sin, I, I, I see the cross and I see the mercy of Jesus. And, and the love of Jesus is especially evident. And there's other times when I'm just, I'm not in tune to anything and I see the cross and I have that healthy sense of fear. It's not that God changes. He doesn't change at all. But see, we are, in a sense, we're looking at the cross from different vantage points, at different angles. And based upon the angle that we're looking at, we're going to feel the fear of the Lord in a slightly different way. That's the best that I've been able to come up with, with a distinction. I hope that helps. My final word is that, I guess it's for, well, before I say that, the author of Ecclesiastes says that the secret of life is fearing God and keeping His commandments. In this sermon, I've said oh, about nothing about keeping His commandments an entirely other sermon could be devoted to that purpose. But my assumption, the assumption I simply hold, is that nothing leads us to consistent obedience more certainly than a true fear and reverence for God. And so, I mean, if, if I could get you and me to cultivate a fear of God in our hearts, I know, I know that we would be more obedient, more loving children and servants of His but the last word is verse 1. It's to, it's, honestly, it's to, to some of you who are younger, if you, if you want to be addressed directly. It's, it's verse 1. It just simply says in verse 1, it says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And when I think about that message, I realize that there's probably no other place or advertising agency in the world that will actually tell you that message. Nike, Nike will never tell us to remember our Creator while we're young. <laughs> you know, um, Broadway will never tell us that. Walmart, <laughs> world of witchcraft, nothing, we'll never get that, that message from any other source than this one. And what he's saying is basically, don't say to yourself, yeah, I will start following God once I, you know, get through high school or get through college and and party my brains out and have a really really good time. He says, 
don't, don't say, I'm going to start following God when I hit my late 20s, early 30s, and I have two kids, and I think, you know, I really ought to go back to church now because I want my kids to have a good, solid, moral foundation. Don't, don't do that, he says, because you're going to miss something priceless. Way too much, and I can speak from personal experience, way too much of our lives are spent thinking that everything will be all right if I can just get my first recording contract or, you know, I can last, uh, land my first professional, um, you know, appearance as a basketball player. If I can find the true love of my life, if I can land the job I've always wanted, you know, everything's going to be all right if that happens to me. And, and the whole message of the book of Ecclesiastes is yes, you can enjoy those things in moderation. But if you try, if you honestly try to, if you try to, to build your life upon that, you're going to end up in free fall because God never created the world in such a way that, that the world could bear the weight of a human life, the weight of a human desires and dreams. That can only be found in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter says, All people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Therefore, take it to heart. Amen. All right, would you pray with me? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, would you please teach us really what it means to fear you I guess I don't even want you to teach us as so much as just let us experience. (laughs) Let us experience the fear of the Lord, that perfect synthesis of love and fear. And if, if if any of us, if any of us have just never tasted that before in our lives, would you, would you make it so that this would be the very first day that it comes upon us? Thank you ever so much for Jesus. He's our only hope. He's the only reason that we we can live. He's the only reason that we can come into your presence. And please hear us for Jesus' sake. And God's people said, Amen.